Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. So the way that I make decisions in my paintings is I move my eyes rapidly around whatever it is I'm looking at and I'm comparing constantly one value to another, one color to another, because nothing exists in a vacuum. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, with the voice you just heard and probably recognize, Sarah Sedwick. Sarah Sedwick is back this week to talk about light and shadows in your paintings in this mini episode. In the conversation, you'll learn the anatomy of light and dark, the questions Sedwick asks when she's starting a new painting, and a bunch of things to keep an eye out for when you're studying your own still life setup, plus a whole lot more. For show notes and a link to Sedwick's feature episode 22, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 47. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show and are looking for some extra help getting and staying inspired each week, I'd love for you to join me in the podcast art club. We talk art, there's references to try, and you'll get early access to all new episodes. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash art club. All right, here we go. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast and mini episode. Today, we are going to talk about light and shadow, and we may reference some of your photos in the conversation. Anything we reference, we'll link to in the show notes so folks can find it there. So first off, what types of light and shadow are there in a painting? We've got the same kind of categories of light and shadow in every painting, no matter what we're painting. We have the light mass, which is the, the plane that's facing the light. It's not the highlight, but it's the, the area of each object that's like the biggest, lightest shape. And then we have the form shadow, which is the side or the half or the section of the object that's facing away from the light. It turns if it's rounded or we have a sharp edge if it's a square and it falls into shadow. It's facing away from the light. So when we're painting, all we're really doing is saying something to the viewer about light. We don't see anything without light. And so the way we're seeing whatever we're painting and the way we're conveying it to the viewer, it's, it's all dependent on how we choose to light that subject or what it is about the action of the light that we choose to emphasize. So I'm really into dramatic lighting on my still lifes. I'm always trying to use the shadow shapes that I'm creating with lighting as part of my paintings, part of the design. And so experimenting with different kinds of lighting as I'm setting up a still life to paint is a pretty big part of that process. So how important is it to find a reference or create a reference that has real light and shadow? How does that help an artist? So whether you're working from a reference photo that you take yourself or borrow or get from a client or a commission, or a friend or family member you're making a painting for, whether you're taking that photo yourself, whether you're working from someone else's photo, or whether you're working from life, which is what I recommend for all people. Let's just be honest. You do need clear light and shadow because that's how we convey form. 
So think about a candid photo, maybe even a flash photo of a loved one that you want to do a portrait of. It's going to be very washed out. You might not see the shadows on the face that are really going to describe that three-dimensional topography of the features to you. And so you have very little information to actually use in your painting to create form. It's very flat. Front lighting just in general tends to be less interesting and you rarely see it in paintings because it's that transition from light to shadow that not only helps us convey form, three-dimensional form, on a two-dimensional canvas, but it also helps us convey texture. Texture is huge in all kinds of painting, but I think maybe especially so in still life. It's something I think a lot about when I'm choosing what objects to put together in a setup, and how we convey texture through paint is 100% about the transition from light to shadow across that texture. So think about painting drapery and painting velvet as opposed to painting silk or painting velvet as opposed to painting a totally different texture like metal or glass. That transition from light into shadow on the velvet is going to be soft and a slower transition, whereas on silk you might have a really light, bright highlight running through an area of darker darks. And on metal, you have really the brightest lights often next to the darkest darks in bands with sharp edges. So we think a lot about edges in painting as being around the contour line of an object, but within the object, you've got value shapes working together to create that form and the edges of those value shapes, that's where we go to get information visually about texture. If you're a still life painter setting up your own still life, make sure that you have an actual hard light you, know, you don't just have natural diffused light on your setup, like actually choose a light. Sure. Well, window light and diffuse light can be beautiful and can be subtle. And at that point, you're almost doing what landscape painters are doing. You're inside with your still life, with your natural light, diffuse light maybe, and you're saying something about the time of day with that light. But it can be harder to create form when we don't see those real contrasts of light and shadow. Now, I like to set up with a very strong light source. I don't want to say that it's the only way to, to paint still life. And definitely with landscape painting, you can get a lot of drama in the early morning and the evening with that really warm light and long shadows that you mentioned. But the middle of the day, that's another lighting situation. I think it's more important to be aware of what the light is doing and the specific properties of what that light is doing at the specific time than say, okay, like the ideal time is X, Y, Z. As painters, we're studying light and we need to study it, take notes on it, paint it, appreciate it, be obsessed with it in all its manifestations at all times. I like to say that you can practice your painting without even being in the studio or having a brush in your hand just by being out in the world and squinting a lot. You know, you might get some funny looks from people, but as I'm going around my daily life, I often play this game that I call, what's the lightest thing that I can see right now? And I squint my eyes and I will ask myself that, yeah, especially outside, it can be fun. It's like, is it always the sky? Not always. So give it a try. Squinting. Also, one of the things I love about painting is there's so many things we think should just be intuitive and they are all learned. Like you have to learn how to see what is the lightest object. Mm, because your brain's got different ideas. I like to use the example of a cut lemon. So we cut a lemon open and I've, I've seen this over and over again a hundred times. Your brain goes, oh, it's a lemon, it's light. But that pulp face of the cut lemon is actually a lot, lot darker than you think it is, than your brain wants to tell you that it is. And there are a lot of cases like that where your brain's got other ideas, but it's really not true when you 
objectively compare it. And that's the trick to getting a handle on these things is comparison. So the way that I make decisions in my paintings is I move my eyes rapidly around whatever it is I'm looking at and I'm comparing constantly one value to another, one color to another, because nothing exists in a vacuum. You've got that subject and that's a universe and it's all, it all has its own laws and rules and it's all just sort of so insular. So you look at one thing and maybe if you could take a whole punch out of it and remove it from that scenario, it would be one thing, but along with all those other colors and values, it becomes part of a larger whole. So I'm moving my eye around the still life and I'm saying, okay, well, is that color warmer or cooler than what's next to it? Is it lighter or darker than what's next to it? And that's how I make all my decisions about color mixing, about how light or dark to paint things, and about how to create form and texture. Mm -hmm. Comparison. So looking at cuties in blue, and we'll link to this in the show notes. Painting of some oranges in a blue glass bowl. Some little little tiny cutie mandarin oranges. I think I fit about five or six of them into this little bowl. Could you talk about the different kinds of light and shadow happening in this painting? Sure. So I have this set up on a low height table. It's actually a box with a drawing board on top of it that would be at about knee height for me, probably. And I've lit it with a spotlight. I, I use warm light on my still lifes. I like halogen light bulbs. They're very hard to get nowadays. So often I'm using LEDs, but they're about 2700K, really warm light. That's what I like. It's a personal preference. And this is lit from above and to the right. So it's, it's almost backlit. The shadow is coming forward and to the left. And I can tell that the light source is relatively low because the shadow is pretty long. And, and you asked me about the different kinds of light and shadow in this painting. As I'm painting, I am often asking myself in my mind, is it in light or is it in shadow? Because it can be tricky. Let's say you've got a dark value object, maybe like this blue glass bowl, or you know, if you've got a black object in your painting. You need to be constantly asking yourself, is it in light or is it in shadow? White is also tricky for this. It's because black in the light is a lot lighter than we think it is, and white in the shadow is a lot darker than we think it is. And so the tendency is when we're approaching something that's white, where the local color is a light value color, our brain doesn't want to go as dark as we need to go. And look how dark the cast shadows are on my light ground in this piece. Really, really dark. And so I constantly have to be asking myself, yes, even though it is white, this thing, if it's in shadow, then I need to know that. It's all about my hierarchy of values and keeping control of that. Because more than trying to show you a bowl of oranges right now, I'm trying to show you the action of this light source, which is creating the, the illusion of three dimensions, hopefully. Okay, so we have the light mass and we have the form shadow and then we have cast shadows and you can see the biggest one in this piece is the cast shadow of the glass on the ground and cast shadows that come through a transparent or semi-transparent object are, are tricky and they have their own set of problems but really there's nothing you need to know about it that I can tell you that's going to help you paint it the best thing to do is just squint at it and stop thinking in terms of nouns right? There's nothing you know about a shadow coming through glass that's going to help you paint it. The only thing to do is look at it objectively and just see it as a set of values, shapes, and colors. So I used to think when I was painting that I was painting two things, which was the object and then it's cast shadow. Oh, and then maybe the negative space, so maybe three things. And now I've completely shifted my mindset. I'm still painting two things, but instead of the object and then it's shadow, I'm painting the light family and the shadow family. So for me, the form shadow, the shadow side of these oranges, 
and their cast shadows. You can see that that one right in the front, the orange that's coming really forward, is casting a shadow onto the orange that it's resting on. The shadow side of that orange and the cast shadow that it's throwing onto the one beneath it are more one thing together for me as a unit than that orange in its entirety with its light side and shadow side. And you can even see that I've practically painted it with the same paint. And then even the negative space, the lights and the shadows in the negative space combine with the lights and the shadows on the object to become part of the light family and the shadow family. You saying that, I can feel my brain, the shift in my brain. Like mm -hmm. It's fascinating how something like that can really shift how you see something and think about it. Yeah, and I want to say a word about the highlights in this piece too. I, I was talking about the edges of value shapes before. Highlights are value shapes too, and the way that we apply a highlight the kind of brushstroke we use, the kind of edges we create on that highlight say a lot about the texture of the object we're painting too. So you can't just go around using the same thick, sharp, crisp edged highlight on everything and have it work. Look at the highlight on the rim of the bowl compared to the ones on the oranges. Not only are they a slightly different color, I've got a significant amount of yellow in the white I used for those highlights. But the edges are softer and fuzzier. Even the brushstroke itself is different. So edges really matter. So from a light and shadow standpoint, obviously you need a value plan because it first comes down to value, right? Yes, for sure. And, and we talk about Sarah's painting process in full detail in episode 22. I'll link to that in the show notes. But, but you do do a value plan for this. Yeah, I do often do value studies for my paintings. It's really it really helps me work out that light family shadow family thing and I'm I'm also asking myself in that process, you know, what's the big dark shape that I can see here? Cuz that's the bare bones, the skeleton of my composition, getting a handle on that big dark shape that I've created with my dramatic lighting, you know, that I've created with overlap and and cast shadows on my still life table. I don't do a value study for every single painting of mine, but I do take a look at values in my underpainting process. I'll do a washy underpainting in a mix of this kind of neutral orange that I like to use. And we do discuss that in detail in, in my first interview with you. People are interested in my whole alla prima painting process. But yeah, looking at my values is really important for me. It's one of the first questions I ask myself when I come to a new subject, whether it's portrait, landscape, or still life. I'm asking myself, what's the lightest thing I can see? What's the darkest thing I can see? Those are the parameters. Everything else that happens in the painting is going to fall somewhere along that continuum. So I find the extremes first. One more thing I want to talk about, you asked about the different kinds of light in this painting, and I left it out, is reflected light. And a lot of times I think people confuse reflected light with reflections. And in this piece and in the, the other piece you wanted to look at with me, we have both. In this glass, we have reflections of the ground. And let's say you have a mirror in your still life, or let's say you have a window in your still, you're seeing something through a window, or you have any kind of glass or metal. It's going to have reflected light, but it is also going to have reflections of the stuff that's around it. And one way to convey that is reflections, even in like water out, outdoors, right? That's Those are also reflections. They're darker usually and usually more neutral, less chromatic than the thing that is being reflected. Reflected light is a little bit different than reflections. So it's sometimes called bounce light. This is like, we, we can observe this with the oranges where they're resting on each other inside those form shadows, where the form shadow meets the cast shadow. There's some light that's getting bounced from whatever's below the object 
back up into the form shadows. And you can see that on the oranges in the bowl, I have these very hot brush strokes, kind of where the oranges intersect and rest on each other. And then the one that's outside the bowl is resting on a blue ground, and he's got reflected light that's a lot cooler, kind of a light blue-violet. And I pushed my reflected light just to the edge of where it would be too bright and it would stick out. You really want that reflected light to live in the shadow family. So when we squint at it, it's got to melt into the shadow. That's a very common mistake. One of the most common mistakes that I see painting students making is they're flattening their form because they get very caught up in conveying the reflected light. They make it too bright and it flattens everything. The reason that our brain tells us that the reflected light is lighter than it actually is is because it's surrounded by dark areas. And because of that, it feels a lot lighter by contrast. So we have to keep squinting and reminding ourselves this is light that lives in the shadow. If I paint this light with the same paint that I used for the light mass, it will not work. So if you're painting in the shadow family and you catch yourself dipping into the paint piles that you mixed up for your light family, red flag. Just notice it and stop. One other thing I want to point out real quick about reflected light is here on these oranges, what I tried to do is convey the sense of reflected light not with an increase in value, not by making that paint lighter or adding white to it, but by making it more colorful, more saturated, okay? We don't see color in the dark, and so making something more chromatic is going to make it feel like light. So look at my form shadows, my core form shadows that are traveling around the uh, kind of midsection of the oranges. If they're, it's dark and it's pretty neutral, especially compared to the lights, the light side. It's really more of a browny green. But then when we come to the reflected light, it's that hot kind of almost crimson color. And that's how I'm showing you the light with increased chroma rather than increased value. Then let's say if you had an orange or any object, but let's talk about an orange with no reflected light on it, no bounce light, which is kind of impossible, but just for the, the sake of discussion, how does the color temperature change both in a form shadow and then a cast shadow? Color temperature is really like a next level issue. I painted for years and never thought about color temperature aside from what I knew the basics, which is reds, yellows, oranges are warm, greens, blues, and purples are cool. Okay, that's it. I tend to like to make temperature decisions based on what I'm actually seeing instead of on rules of thumb. There's this big rule of thumb floating around that says if your light source is warm, you'll have warm lights and cool shadows. But here's the thing, the local color of the object has a huge impact on color temperature across the board. So if you have an orange, which is very hot color, one of the warmest colors we have, you shine a warm light on that, yeah, your light side's gonna be warm. And your shadows may be cooler than the light mass, but they are still gonna be technically a warm color. They're just cooler or maybe more neutral. So rather than thinking about color temperature, which I really believe is, is influenced by the local color a lot. I use a lot of color in my negative space, colored paper backgrounds, colored cloth backgrounds, and a, a cast shadow on red is still gonna be a version of red. It's gonna be a warm color. Rather than thinking about color temperature, I like to think about saturation. So if I'm taking a color from light into shadow, I want to move it away from the tube. I want to make it less saturated. Whatever I'm going to add to that, it's going to take the chroma out. It's going to darken it and neutralize it because we see less color in the dark. So the most saturated side will be the light mass side. Yes. Yes. Okay. So then 
from a color mixing standpoint, and actually let's look at Blue Breakfast for this example. So Blue Breakfast, the painting will be at the show notes, but it's a blue cup and plate and then an orange peachy sort of napkin and grapefruit. So you're creating a shadow onto this peachy color and the shadow is super blue. How did you decide the color of that shadow? And then how did you actually mix that color? Because I think it's one thing to be like, okay, the, the napkin is peachy, orange. How am I going to make a shadow on an orange surface? Often we'll just think like, well, I'll make it dark orange because that's, you know, darker of the thing. But in here, what's so lovely is that, I mean, yes, it is darker, but it's also not just like brown. So how does someone walk across that tiny bridge in their brain? Yeah, to use expressive, fun color, to take some risks with color choices and color seeing, how do we do it? Well, so first of all, I say default to perception. I want to always be looking objectively at the colors that I'm seeing. And I set these still lifes up pretty carefully so that I have a lot to look at. Let's put it that way. I have colors influencing each other throughout the painting. And when I shine a really strong light source on everything, it bounces color all around. And so one of the most common questions I get in workshops is, what color is that cast shadow? And I'll try to suggest that students be objective and just really look at it. You can use a color isolator. Or you can make a fist and kind of look through the, the hole in the end of your fist with, with one eye closed. Get that color isolated away from all the other colors in the scene. If you look into that shadow, you might be surprised at what you would see. Maybe it's intuitive for us to think, okay, if it's a pinky orange napkin, then the shadow color is going to be a darker version of pinky orange. But question that. Just take a minute and question that and really look at the shadow and ask yourself, what color is it? Many times I'll get the answer of, well, it's gray. And I'll say, okay, well, almost all the colors in your painting are actually a form of gray. They just lean a little bit toward one hue or another. Gray isn't a real helpful word when we're trying to diagnose a hue. So let's say I'm looking into that cast shadow of the mug here in, in Blue Breakfast. It looks gray to me. And so I can, I can see the value relationship. I can see how much darker it is than the napkin that's not in the shadow. But I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out what color that is. And I got to start asking myself really objectively, you know, what hues do I see in there? Because gray doesn't help me mix it. Is it a purpley gray? Is it a bluish gray? Is it a warm gray? Is it like a pinkish gray? And in this painting, really, it's a good example. Uh, you can see the hue kind of shift through the shadow. So the cast shadow color is influenced by the color it's being cast on. It's influenced by the color of the object that's casting it. And then the light source comes into play if we want to go there and make our lives more complicated. But really, it's a combination of what color is the surface, what color is the object. And it's strange, but what happens with this particular pink color is, yeah, the shadow goes violet. This blue that you're seeing here that's more saturated in the front of the shadow, that's me taking a little artistic license. I want to make some color harmony in this painting by getting that blue to move around, get, get that blue to move your eye around the canvas. And so maybe I'll choose to throw some of it into that shadow. Even if I don't exactly see it, it's fine because I've got the values correct. I've got that cast shadow dark enough compared to the light that it's on. So I can get away with a lot color-wise. This is the good news for people who find color mixing really intimidating. It's not that important what color you paint something. What's much, much, much more important is observing, capturing, maintaining those value relationships that you're seeing. 
and then you can have so much fun with color. And I did. And so and you'll see as I move out of the cast shadow of the mug and into the shadows between the folds of the cloth, where it's only the pink cloth that's that's influencing each other, they're resting on each other, so it's just pink on pink. Those shadows get a lot warmer. They're still violet to me, maybe, but they're a red violet instead of that blue violet that's coming from the cup. So what I hear you saying is that if you get lost, which might happen, go back to first figuring out value, like go back to that value plan and that relationship plan. Yeah, and figuring out the value relationships is going to help with other things too. If you squint at this painting, look at the reflection in the mug. We talked about the difference between highlights and reflections. This piece is a good example of that because we've got reflections in that shiny ceramic glaze. But squint and look at the reflection of the pink napkin in the outer front of that mug. It's the same value as the cast shadow. It's probably the same paint as the cast shadow. I don't have to worry about what color to paint that as much, but squinting and realizing that it's the same value as the cast shadow is critical. And look, in the cup, that piece of reflection is lighter. It feels lighter because it's next to this dark, dark blue. On the ground, it's the same paint, but it's the cast shadow. It's next to all these lights and it feels dark. Also in the plate, there's the reflection of the grapefruit. You can see that kind of down there at seven o'clock-ish on the plate. Look at that next to the highlight that's on the rim. That reflection is much less contrast. It's really just sort of a, a color sharing deal, which is the, the term I totally just made up. Not just now, but I did make that up for when light bounces color around in a still life and passes it, passes it off so that they all can share. Listening to you talk about all the pieces that are going on in this still life, I'm also just struck by you have a still life you're looking at Sometimes when people are starting, they're trying to make this up and get frustrated. And it's so complicated, even when you have something to look at. I definitely know in my painting past, I have tried to do cat shadow and bounce light not looking at something and wondered why I was confused. And yes, of course, I was confused about how any of that works. Like, it's not intuitive. You have to look at something. Sure. I think you would need to practice a lot practice your observation of life a lot to be able to even begin to make stuff up. And uh, frankly, I never make things up. That scares me a lot. That would be an extremely uncomfortable feeling for me. I am real careful and meticulous about my still life setup so that I can just relax and rely on perception, just be copying reality as I'm working. That makes me feel safe. Well, then I guess for you, what do you need to have true to life and where can you play and push? Mm, that's a really good question. So what I need to be true to life is the drawing. Yeah. And then, and the values, drawing and values. And then once we get into color, that's where I play. And the simplification uh, too. So painting is a process of simplifying and then exaggerating. You want to simplify the things that maybe aren't as important potter building a cup and saucer here. You're a painter showing light, form, and color. So we want to be able to let some of the perfectionism go around around th those kind of meticulous details. But value relationships, you know, I want those correct. And even when I talk about drawing, what I mean is relative. You know, I want the cup and the plate to be correct relative to each other because that way I can use negative shapes to help me draw, it's it's pretty important. If I'm if I just say, well, I'm going to choose to make the cup a whole lot bigger, then I can't come in and use the the shapes in between the cup and the plate to help me get that ellipse right. So the things that I hold on to that I really want to be correct are a my drawing most of all, 
and be the value relationships. But then let's look at something like the spoon in this piece. I want to be simplifying that as much as possible. A, because it's a supporting character in this painting, and B, because the harder I look into that spoon, I could probably see the whole universe in there, you know, and, and that's not what I'm about. I want to have loose freshness in my brushwork. So I'm trying to simplify and then I'm trying to exaggerate what is it about what I'm seeing in the spoon that says spoon to me, that says concave spoon, and also what is saying metal texture. So those are the things I want to exaggerate. The rest of it I want to simplify a lot and then I can have the chunky brushwork that I'm going for. What are some cues that people should be on the lookout for if their light and shadows aren't working? Like you mentioned flatten before, mm -hmm. that if things can feel flattened. Are there any other things that they should, like if they sense that not working, they should be like, okay, let me check my values or okay, let me check my saturation? Yeah, I think one place that painters can run into problems with the cast shadows is value also edges and temperature. I see a lot of shadows that are very dense, very dark, and with very sharp edges. And those things don't necessarily say cast shadow. In a cast shadow, there's no there there. It's atmosphere. And so we want it to feel like it's got some air in it because it's not a solid cast shadow is not a solid thing. So we're looking for soft edges generally. We're looking for possibly a shift in value as the cast shadow moves out from its object. You can see that in the shadow under the cup here. It gets darker and darker as it slides under and then it connects the cup down to the ground with that dark occlusion shadow. I like to call that the lily pad because it's like what the frog sits on in the pond. It's what the cup sits on in its shadow is that darkest piece. But if I paint that whole shadow really dark, dense, and opaque, it's going to look like a black hole in the canvas. It needs to have some air in it. And edges are a big part of that too. I actually spend way more time than I would like to admit working on my cast shadow edges in every painting. It's pretty important for conveying texture. Right, they're not always hard or soft, but they need to be representative of what they're sitting on. Or are there some hard and fast rules around edge quality in shadows? So edge quality in cast shadows, there's rules of thumb. Again, trust your perception first. Really look and ask yourself objectively, what am I seeing happening here? But often what you're going to notice is that the cast shadow gets a harder edge as it approaches its object. And then, so think about an airplane coming down to the runway. The shadow is really light and pretty diffuse when the plane is high in the air. And then as it approaches touchdown, that shadow is going to get darker, harder edges until the plane finally touches down and we get the darkest, that connecting point. Also, when you've got, let's say you're looking at a, a still life at a higher elevation. So maybe you're seeing the shadow of a cup and it's really going straight out to the right. And that shadow's got a front edge that's closer to your eye and it's got a back edge that's farther away. Chances are you're going to have harder, more defined edges on that front front part of the shadow that's closer to your eye, and then on the back it'll all be soft. I want to say a word also about double shadows. So sometimes we get multiple light sources in our studios. Maybe we're shining a strong light on our setup, but we've also got some window light in the room, or we've got a lamp on so we can see what we're doing. And then when we look at our still life, we can see multiple shadows. That can get tricky. What I always advise is squint real hard, pick the dominant shadow, and go with that unless you are trying to make a painting about multiple shadows. Stay away from all that complicated stuff or else, you know, it's going to be very distracting and become the subject of your painting. And it's, it's not what you came here to paint. Focus on the subject. Let the shadows be supporting characters.
You can learn more about Sarah Sedwick, including her workshops, at her website, sarahsedwick.com, or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we'll link to everything in the show notes, including we'll have the two paintings we talked about there. So find them there. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sarah. My pleasure. It's always great to talk to you, Kelly. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 47 for show notes. But before you go, not all support is financial. So clearly I talk about the podcast art club through Patreon because I'd love to be able to keep doing this show. But if financial support isn't in the cards, there's a way to support the show through a few minutes of your time. If you enjoy the show, click like and subscribe on your listening app. And if you've got a few more minutes to spare, leave a review of the show. This helps other artists find the podcast and it makes a big difference. Speaking of big differences, a big thank you to everyone supporting on Patreon through the Podcast Art Club. You make this show possible. An extra shiny thank you to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, and Kirk Keefe. Happy painting!